Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at tprdfw.com. Well, we're in our study on the 150 chapters uh, on the end times. And uh, for those of you who have missed the last few, um, there's 150 chapters in the Bible that are uh, the primary subject is the second coming of Christ, the time period before and then the time period right after. And so it's a worthy subject matter to give some serious attention to. And uh, we spent a couple of weeks in um, Matthew chapter 24. Um, Matthew 24 is a pretty long chapter, so it made sense to break it up into two sessions. Um, But for most of the chapters, it'll just be a one session per night kind of a thing. And this is the case tonight with Mark 13. A couple of points I want to make as we jump in um, is the, uh, the Mark 13 is one of the, um, the synoptic gospel accounts of the end time uh, storyline that Jesus told us in uh, Matthew chapter 24. So if that term synoptic gospels, if that's not a term you're familiar with, there's four gospels, you probably know that, John being the fourth, and the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all have a certain kind of flow. They tell the story in a similar way. <clears throat> they focus a lot on kind of the, the uh, chronological ministry of Jesus. And then John tells the story from a different angle entirely. He focuses more on some discipleship points, and he gives us uh, longer uh, sermons that Jesus gave. And it's not the same content as the other three guys. I mean, there's a lot of overlap, obviously. But the significant overlap is in the synoptics. So they're, they're synonymous, or there's, there's some, some measure of uh, you know, them being in sync and synchronism, that kind of concept, is that these three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they share a lot of information, but not everything that's in one synoptic gospel is in all three. In fact, there is a tremendous amount of information that is only in one or in two of them. An interesting point, this subject, this uh, sermon, if you will, this uh, teaching that Jesus did on the end times, it's in all three of them. And that's a noteworthy point because not everything is in all three of those Gospels, but the Holy Spirit wanted to make sure that this information got to us in all three uh, synoptic Gospels. And a part of the benefit of that is we get to see it from three different angles. Language is a little bit different. Uh, some of the, the uh, information is new or different or varied. Uh, and so we get to see from three different angles um, the words of Jesus that we looked at last week in Matthew 24 and the week before, we now get to see it from Mark's vantage point. And uh, in our next session, we'll see it from Luke's. And so each one of these, there's some differences. So we're going to look at some of the differences tonight. We're going to do a little bit of comparison uh, to Matthew 24 because I think that probably as a ministry, at least in our world, I think we're probably uh, more familiar and maybe most comfortable with Matthew 24 out of the three synoptic uh, versions of uh, Jesus' teaching on this subject, uh, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. Those are the three places. And so I want us to kind of get more familiar, more comfortable with my, uh, Mark 13 and Jesus talking about the end times in Mark 13. And part of the way that we'll do that is by making some comparison contrast uh, to what we've already looked at in, uh, in Matthew 24. So not all of this will be new content, but it's important that we see it. It's important that we familiarize ourselves if you don't feel as comfortable with Mark 13 as you do with Matthew 24, 
tonight's a good chance for you to start, you know, working that muscle a little bit. So I want to encourage you to do that. Um, also, uh, the just as a little point of uh, connection, uh, the account, because remember, it's the same concept. It's Jesus in the Gospels teaching on the end times. The account that Mark gives and the account that Matthew give are the two most uh, synonymous. They're, they're the ones that look the most unique. There's a good bit in Luke that's different. Uh, there's some things, of course, that are, are in all three of them. But if you had to pick what are the two that are the most like, you'd pick Matthew and Mark. Well, let's look at some of the differences. Actually, I'm sorry. Let's look at the commonalities first. Uh, letter C if you're in the notes here. Commonalities with Matthew 24. Uh, in both uh, accounts, we see in, in Mark 13 and Matthew 24, we see the signs of the times being discussed. We see the coming deception being a really big point. We see the glory that accompanies the second coming of Christ. We see the warnings about being prepared for his coming. Well, now let's look at a few of the differences. Now this is uh, the top of page two, letter E. Let's look at a few of the differences between Mark's account and Matthew's. Matthew's account is quite a bit longer. So Matthew gives us the most details of, of the three Gospels. He gives us the most details by probably twice as much, or nearly. I mean, it's, he gives a lot more detail. Mark adds the detail that persecution will result in being Christ's witnesses. It's probably assumed. It's an obvious assumption point in Matthew. But uh, one of the things that's different is Mark makes the direct correlation. He says, your persecution is going to equal you being my witnesses in ways that you otherwise wouldn't have been my witnesses. Another point that's different, Mark adds that children will betray parents and even have them put to death. That's a detail that's not found in Matthew. That The children, specifically, that's like, wow, that's really, really intense. Another detail that Mark adds is the exhortation to not be found sleeping. It's a spiritual sleeping is the idea. So there's just a few uh, differences. Now let's jump in to the text of Mark chapter 13, and we're going to more or less start in verse 5, and we're going to go through uh, the book of the chapter, um, just kind of one piece at a time. But the first uh, point here, Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 13, 5 through 6, Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. Uh, is it possible to actually get a little bit more light on the stage? I'm having a hard time reading these notes. Um, yeah, thank you. Okay, so, uh, so Jesus said, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he and will deceive many. So we've got Jesus' uh, response. This is the part that I want to point out because it's like we, we're familiar with these words. The part that I want to point out is when Jesus starts lifting off, listing off the signs of the times, the first sign, the first focus, the first words out of his mouth you just think about that when somebody asks you a question. Normally, like the thing that's at the tip of your tongue, I mean, there's some significant importance to that, and then you kind of back it up, you know? <clears throat> Jesus, when he's teaching on the signs of the times, the first thing he says is, watch out that no one deceives you. So it would not be an unfair statement to say that the number one sign that Jesus identified, or at least the first in his list, is don't be deceived in the end times. Like, wait a minute, That's how is that a sign of the times? And he's like, well, I, it will actually be a sign because many will be deceived. 
you'll be able to identify many being deceived in those days. And he says, I'm exhorting you to not be deceived. So that's an important uh, highlight point, I think. Next, uh, let's look at the, this term, the signs of the times, just to be you know, very uh, frank about it. We made up that term, but we made up that term for good reasons. The term that the scripture uses is the beginning of birth pains. That's the, the more commonly found phrase related to these signs of the times. But I would think if you've been in church culture for any period of time, you probably heard of people talk about or do a teaching series or something on the signs of the times. Well, again, I think that that's an apt uh, picture. It's just not biblical language. And the reason it's an apt picture is because the term that is used is likening the events of the end times to the, the process of labor and looking at these early birth pains. These You're not pushing the baby out yet. But there's problems happening in the world, and Jesus is likening that to those first pains where it's like, oh, there's a baby coming. Water hasn't broken yet, but I'm starting to feel labor pains, and I haven't felt labor pains for these whole nine months. I mean, it is now a time. That is a sign that it is time to do whatever you're about to do. I mean, if you need to get to the hospital, get to the hospital. If you need to hunker down in the tub, whatever you do, however you have babies, it's time to get ready, people, because it's a sign that you're about to have this baby, Okay. Jesus uses that as a sign, as an indicator. So then he lists off a number of these signs that are the labor pain equivalent. So he's like, labor pain one looks like this. Labor pain two looks like this. Labor pain three looks like this. And he's using this because he knows that everyone can relate and understand the concept. When a pregnant woman starts to have labor pains, the baby is coming very soon. So that's the reason that we use it as the signs of the times. That's the reason we use that term. But it is important to note that that's not a biblical term directly. So Jesus says this right after he just got done saying, don't be deceived. He says, and will deceive many. Many will be deceived. Following that, he says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars. Now, this is where we start to think more signs of the times. We start to look at this more traditionally as the signs of the times, but Jesus actually identified the first sign as rampant deception and even people claiming to be Jesus. I mean, that's a really intense thing. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. It's a bit ominous because if these, which that's a pretty hefty list, if these are the beginning of birth pains, then what are more heavier birth pains? What, are, what does this look like as these things start to uptick? Well, we've actually got a whole Bible filled with signs of the times. <coughs> There's a ton of signs that are listed in other places besides Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And even Matthew, Mark, and Luke's lists very slightly. So you can learn a lot by studying this subject kind of across the scripture. This is Jesus saying, look, if you want to know how you can pay attention and know you're in the early labor stage, so you're, you're going to be pushing here in a minute, but it's, you got, you're in labor for a while. And again, you always want to make the comparison, hopefully, in the normal labor situation, which we all know people that didn't experience the most ideal labor situation. But in the ideal labor situation, you've got labor pains are happening for a whole lot longer than the heavy pushing. (laughs) 
you want the heavy pushing to be short and the labor pains to be much longer. I mean, you don't want it to be days, but you want that to last a lot longer than the heavy pushing because heavy pushing is exhausting and takes everything. I mean, it's just intense. And Jesus is using the normal thought process that the period of the labor pains will last a lot longer than the heavy pushing part, which is likened to the Great Tribulation. And we know that that lasts three and a half years. So these labor pains are going to last a whole lot longer than three and a half years. Probably some decades is, is always the, the way that I look at it and, and see it based off of, you know, all the labor pains that have to happen. Okay. Um, so moving on. Jesus, at the end of this, after he says, you know, these labor pains, his, his last statement right after that is, you must be on your guard. Jesus, in relationship to the signs of the times, he says, you must be on your guard. Now, historically, and maybe even you know now, people may not necessarily like that. People might go, I don't want to study the end times. That seems weird. Or, you know, nobody ever knows you know, what's going to happen. Or people have been wrong for however, many, however long. Say what you want. Jesus says, you must be on your guard. There is no choice here. We don't have to like it. We don't have to agree with it. Who cares if you really agree with God or not? Just follow God. Like, do what God says. But Jesus says, you must be on your guard. Now, this is a good statement because it tells us a lot, actually. To hear the words of Jesus be, you must be on your guard with relationship to the signs of the times, it tells us a few things. Let's just read a few of them. I got written here on number two, uh, page two, bottom of the page. It means that we can understand ahead of time. You must be on your guard for these things. means that just people that love Jesus, that have got a pulse and that love the Lord, can understand the signs of the times before they happen. How could we, on our guard, why would it matter if we're on our guard if we don't understand what's happening? We can understand them. That's the first thing. Second, we can clearly identify them when they come. If you're on your guard for something, you were told to look out for something specific, you need to be able to identify it when you see it. Otherwise, you being on guard is pointless. So not only can we understand them ahead of time, but we can clearly identify them when they come. That'd be the second takeaway. Third takeaway, not only is it possible to identify them, we must identify them. Now, it's different. Think about the, the heart posture of you can do this if you want versus you must do this. There's two very different heart postures related to that subject. Jesus says, you must be on your guard about these things. And then, fourth, we must respond to them well when they come. We've got to respond to them when they come. It's not, it's not enough that they just happen. We've got to be able to identify them and know what we're supposed to do and respond. The whole point of Jesus telling us this is so that we can be involved in his narrative. Many of you have heard me say this before, but I just... I, I think it's worth getting deep in our heart. The end times are God's end times. They belong to God. They're not the devil's end times. They're not creation's crazy times. They don't belong to creation. They don't belong to the lost. They don't belong to the enemy. They belong to God. So God wrote the end time storyline, and he says, I want you actively engaged in my story. I want you to be able to participate. I want you to know what's going on. I want you to be able to respond rightly. You must be on your guard. <coughs> All right? <clears throat> Moving along, that was verse 9. You know, now let's go uh, to uh, the latter part of verse 9 through 13. This talks about the great persecution that's coming. 
Now, this is Jesus warning us. There is no question of whether or not persecution is coming. There's no question. Only a question of will we be ready like Jesus is admonishing us to be ready. There's no question about whether the persecution's coming. And I just think so often as Western believers, we just, we really just assume that that's not going to touch us, that that's not going to be a part of our world and our experience. I promise you that when Jesus said these words, he knew they were going to get written down. The Holy Spirit had every intention of carrying the words of Jesus that day into the Bible so that Jews and Gentiles across the whole earth could know the words of Jesus, hear it, and respond. So John 3.16 counts for everybody. God so loved the world. And so does Mark 13.9-13. It counts for everybody on the planet too. These are all parts of the words of Jesus to the body of Christ related to uh, what's coming. And part of the reason that we know that is because in the book of Revelation, we're told that the Antichrist, who is going to be kind of at the, the center of all the persecution, though it's not uh, all him, we're told that the Antichrist's reach will be global. It will be every nation, every tribe, tongue, people group, city, everywhere. I mean, it's going to be the whole world. And so I, I added city. City's not actually on the list. <clears throat> but every nation, tribe, tongue, everywhere. So if we know that it's going to be a global problem, and then Jesus is teaching us from a pastoral standpoint about what that global problem is going to look like, we want to pay attention. So here's the warning that Jesus gave. You'll be handed over to local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you'll stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. There's that witnesses thing. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. <clears throat> Just say whatever is given to you at that time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death. A father, his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. This is it's really heavy stuff. This persecution gets really personal. It starts off with the interaction or the relationship of the believer to the city and to the surroundings. But then it gets down into the family unit. It says now the persecution, it won't just come from without. It will even come from within households. Therefore, be on guard. Therefore, stand firm. I mean, these are really intense admonitions because the wave of difficulty that's going to come as the world continues to lose its mind... And as culture continues to full-on embrace all the things that we looked at when we're looking at the book of Revelation and the harlot Babylon at the end of the age, all the things that make up that cultural, you know, uh, turning away from God, turning away from reason, turning away from righteousness, calling evil good, good evil. As our culture continues to embrace those things, there is the, the gap between lost and saved is going to become clearer and clearer. It, their gray is going to get washed out. It's going to be black and white. It's going to be really clear. And there are going to be people who maybe in a previous generation, that kid wouldn't have turned, betrayed their parents and tried to get them killed. But that kid in a previous generation was lost, was not walking with the Lord, was in their own way and was a part of the culture. But the culture had not pushed them to the very brink of evil, to the fullness of, uh, of what Daniel uh, describes as when rebels become completely wicked. 
okay? Well, some of those rebels are going to be in people's families. I mean, all of them, somebody's family. But what if it's your family? That's, and Jesus is giving this encouragement. He's saying, don't think about this happening somewhere on the planet. He says, you need to start preparing for what are you going to do if your kid says to you, if you don't start worshiping the Antichrist right now, dad, I'm turning you in tomorrow. Whoa, it's really intense, really intense. He says, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And that's really the, that's where the, the boundary line goes. Like, I have to stay saved. <laughs> like, I, I have to continue to walk with Jesus in the most trying difficulties ever. Okay, well, all of these difficulties related to that uh, persecution, uh, it actually gets more intense. And now we're in verse 14, 14 to 23, the great tribulation. When you see the abomination which causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be the days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut those days short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ. Or look, there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. This is really intense stuff. Now, we talked about the abomination that causes desolation last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but quick review. It's an idol that's going to be set up in the temple, and this idol can talk. This idol seems to have a will of its own and can act on behalf of the will of the Antichrist. This idol is going to be just horrendously evil and have power, be like anointed. I gave you here the Revelation 13 passage, which just gives so much clarity. Just imagine the guys that were walking with Jesus after John had the revelation and John tells the guys the revelation. You just know that they were so thankful for some more details because they were like, man, when John or when Jesus was talking back in, you know, Mark 13, obviously they would be referencing whatever day that was, not a Bible verse and chapter, but back in the Mark 13 day, you know, when he was talking about this, we were having a hard time picturing it. John's like, oh, I pictured it. All right. Let me tell you. He says, it ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was worship, uh, I'm sorry, who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or their forehead so that they could not sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. So this is the, the great tribulation being kicked off by this abomination that causes desolation being set up in the temple. Well, let's talk a little bit about this. Standing where it does not belong, that phrase just jumped out to me in a new way that I, I don't think I'd ever uh, seen before. Where it does not belong, I just, I was meditating on that a little bit. Like what, I mean, obviously it's, it, 
at, at face value, yes, it doesn't belong there, but what are some specifics about that? What is that drawing out? If we think about that phrase, what's that supposed to lead us to? Well, one, this idol and all that it represents would be fitting in hell. It would be fitting. It would be in the right environment. Where it does not belong, well, how about where does it belong? It belongs in hell. In hell, where, where it's all you know, condemned to everlasting burning and torment. There's this whole you know, realm of the condemned, all that. That's where it would belong. It does not belong where it is being put. It does not belong in the temple of God. God's temple. That is not where you put this abominable thing. And yet that's exactly where the Antichrist is going to put it. It doesn't belong in the Holy of Holies. It doesn't belong in the most holy place where God's name and presence would be revered. It doesn't. It doesn't belong in the middle of a peace treaty centered around Israel. This, we talked a little bit about this last week. This event of this abomination that caused desolation, it's put into place. It's put in the temple at the midway point of a seven-year peace treaty that's going to be signed with Israel and the nations. And at the, seven, at the uh, midway point, at three and a half years, there's supposed to be seven years of peace and safety. There's supposed to be seven years of we're good and we're protected and Israel's able to do what it's supposed to do. And yet in the middle of the seven years, this thing is put into place. It does not belong there. Another point, this is a mimic of the way that Jesus is going to rule and be worshipped. Jesus, this is an interesting idea. Think about our modern context, how strange it would be for a leader to say, I'm the governmental leader, I'm the leader of the nation, and I lead from a holy temple because I'm God and you have to follow me because I'm not only the leader, I'm God. That's a really odd concept for us. Well, whose idea was that? It actually wasn't the Antichrist's. It was Jesus's. It was God's idea for Jesus. That's the plan for Jesus, is that he would rule in a temple as the one to be worshipped and also the governmental leader of the earth. This is the Antichrist mimicking. It's a mocking. He's taking what he knows to be real and true about the way that Jesus will rule and reign, and he sets himself up in that same temple. It's like the biggest slap to the face imaginable. Like the Antichrist (coughs) ruling and reigning the earth from a temple. That just that idol does not belong there. Really intense. All right. Well, one of the verses that we looked at uh, was talking about the, uh, or a couple of the verses, were talk, was talking about the manner <clears throat> in which the, uh, the expediency of exit uh, is required when this happens. When the Antichrist sets himself up and sets the idol up in the, the temple, that's the abomination that causes desolation, when he does that, the, uh, the admonition from uh, the passage that we just read was, if you're in Judea, so if you're in the surrounding territory, it says this, those who are in Judea, flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Don't go back inside and try to get a couple of things. Don't worry about your passport. Don't worry about your, you know, a couple extra pairs of clothes. Get out now. Now, that's, that's really intense because that is like, the most expedient exit imaginable. That's not, hey, when this happens, you know, you probably want to make sure you're out of town by next week. You're, you want to make sure you're out of town by tomorrow morning because tonight's going to be really bad. It says, don't even go get stuff. 
If you forgot something, it's forgotten. It's gone. It's done. It's over. If it's not on your person, don't go get it. He says it's that intense. That is really, really intense. Now, there's a couple thoughts that I had about that. One, this speaks a lot about the Antichrist's organization. Because for that to be needed, for that quickness of exit to be reality and needed. And remember, this is Jesus talking to believers. This is Jesus talking to those that are following him. He says, when this thing happens, you're, if you live in Judea, you're going to need to exit very, very quickly. You only say that if you know by foresight, if you understand the Antichrist is going to be so organized, he's going to be able to lock down the city within the hour. I mean, that's what that means. Like, do the math. He's going to be able to lock things down very quickly. It's not going to take him weeks to get things organized. It also tells us that when the Antichrist sets up the abomination that causes desolation, the primary objective is not a celebration service. Because a celebration service takes time and you know energy and you plan the parade and all that. All the attention is there. He says, when this happens, you don't have the whole afternoon. Like, you'd better get out of town now. This tells us a tremendous amount about how much back work the Antichrist has been doing so that when this moment occurs, he's able to execute this thing very quickly. I was just, wow, that's really telling and terrifying. Uh, one detail that's in Matthew that's not in Mark says, pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. I was talking with Tom earlier, and he had a great insight from uh, somebody he was listening to, some uh, podcast that uh, from a, uh, now having never been in Israel or lived in Israel, I don't know this to be true, but it sounds reasonable. It sounds very reasonable. So that this individual is talking about having lived in Israel for a season of time, knows that on the Sabbath, public transportation is shut down. So if you're in Israel, and specifically that area on the Sabbath, now, public transportation didn't exist back when Jesus gave this prophecy. But in 2023, you better believe it does. And if you live in that area and you're used to operating mostly or completely on public transportation, this is a real issue. And so Jesus says, it's interesting because he says it, and I think we actually should do it. Pray that the Antichrist doesn't set up shop on a Saturday or Friday night. Like Pray that that doesn't happen. Because if it does, the public transportation system in Israel is not going to be operational, and it's going to make it harder for people to get out. It's like, dude, that's really intense. All right, false Christs and false prophets will appear. This is just, I want you to read this. I want you to understand this because this is, this is so interesting and layered deception. It's crazy. Matthew, or Mark 13, 22, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive. Now, this is right after the abomination that causes desolation is set up. So let me give you the, the storyline here. Satan sets up the Antichrist in the temple. And then Satan, not man, not smart people, Satan raises up false Jesuses right after he just set up the Antichrist. 
He raises up false Jesuses in order to ensnare more people. And specifically, this message is to Christians, not to lost people. What lost people are spending their Saturday night studying Mark chapter 13? This is for believers. Now, check this out. This is like crafty deception. It gives us some insight when Jesus says, make sure you're not deceived, because I'm telling you, you have no idea how intense this is going to be. The, it, Satan raises up the Antichrist, and at the same time, he says, hey, you six guys, I need all of you to pretend that you're Jesus. You're the solution for the church that's trying to get away from the Antichrist. I need for all of you to pretend to be Jesus, the real Jesus, so that we can get even more, because there's going to be people that are able to identify that's the Antichrist, he's bad, but they don't have enough discernment to know you're not the real Jesus. So I need you to raise up and be false Jesuses. Oh my gosh, that is intense. That is layered deception that, the, that, that, that Satan is pulling the strings on all of this in order to, I just imagine the common churchgoer, this is the message to the common churchgoer, don't be deceived, don't be deceived, you're going to be deceived, it's done, you're, you're toast if you don't do something about it, it's going to be that intense of deception, so I just imagine the common churchgoer that's like, I know enough about the Antichrist, because I heard a couple of things, seven-year peace treaty, you know, I, I know enough that when the Antichrist comes, I feel like I'll be able to identify him but they don't have the discernment because they've not spent enough time looking at it, reading it, understanding it, to recognize there's specific things that have to happen. And I want to go beyond discernment. I want to go to faith. They don't have the faith to believe the real Jesus will appear in the sky and actually be riding on horses and having the armies of heaven behind him. They're, they're thinking and again, this will be all our like modernism, all you know, post-Christian you know, era. This is going to be all of that kind of influence that's going to be luring people that are churchgoers. That's going to be luring people into a different version of the end time storyline that would make it believable that this guy over here who claims to be Jesus kind of looks like how I thought Jesus would look. He operates in signs and wonders. It says they're going to appear and perform signs and wonders. Furthermore, the way Jesus said it, it's Jesus' words. He uses this word, which to me is, a, is as telling as the rest of the language. He says, they will appear. It doesn't say they're going to raise up, you know, that some guy, you know, who went to seminary, he's going to graduate from seminary and one day realize he's the Messiah. It says they will appear. And perform signs and wonders. Well, what if some guy who we didn't have his backstory, we didn't know where, we couldn't find his passport, anything, just showed up in our town, it was operating in signs and wonders, seemed to be walking in righteousness, was calling on the name, you know, of God, and was moving in signs and wonders. Maybe that's Jesus, which is the very language Jesus says. So if you hear somebody say, maybe that's Jesus, don't believe it. Why would he have to say that except that it will be believable? Why does he have to say, don't go to them, that's not me. Why does he have to say that unless it will actually be believable enough to enough people, to enough Christians in that hour that that guy will get a following and that guy and that guy and that guy. He says, you do not be deceived. We are not thinking about the level of deception that is coming. It is going to be really intense. And so Jesus says, 
Don't be deceived. Let's go on here. Timing of the second coming. Go a few more minutes. But in those days, following that distress, so Jesus just got done. He just got done telling us the signs of the times, and he got done telling us about the abomination caused desolation, talking about the uh, period of the, uh, the Great Tribulation. He says, after those days, following that distress, then the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. He says, that's the real Jesus. Anything shy of that, it's not me, no matter how believable, no matter what your favorite preacher says, no matter, no matter. It says, that's how you know it's me. The sign of the Son of Man, I'm appearing in the sky. That's the final sign you need to pay attention to is when I appear in the sky. It says, and he'll send out his angels to gather his elect from the four winds of the earth, uh, from the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation, which generation? The generation that just saw the signs. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will, not, will never pass away. So it's following the distress of the great tribulation is when Jesus comes. Then he appears in the sky. Well, that's exactly what it says in Revelation 1. Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. This is Jesus giving us uh, greater clarity in the book of Revelation of what he said specifically. He says, I'm going to appear in the sky. Yes, in the sky. That's really me. That's really the plan. So don't let somebody that's into like you know, technology and, you know, trying to figure out modernization of different things and like trying to modernize, you know, the Bible to say, you know, Jesus isn't going to appear in the sky on clouds. He's going to like, you know, be on top of one of the high skyscrapers and he'll, you know, he'll be up there and there'll be a TV screen that's kind of, you know, magnifying his image and everybody's going to know that that's Jesus. He says, that is not me. I will be on the clouds with power and great glory and on and on. And every eye will see me. So, that's another thing. None of these other guys are going to have every eye see them. Jesus is going to be the only one that has every eye see him. The rapture will then take place. This is the harvest at the end of the age. And uh, it says here in Matthew 13, it gave you a couple verses that help us see the picture of the rapture, the, the, the description of the rapture from other places besides just Mark uh, 13. So here's Matthew 13. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Uh, Paul talks about the rapture in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 52. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed, or we will be changed. So this is just more kind of filling in the blanks here of when Jesus is talking about the rapture in um, Matthew 13, which he was just doing. He said, and he'll send out his angels to gather his elect from the four winds of the earth and the ends of the heavens. 
This is Jesus now giving us more information, or the Holy Spirit giving us more information in Mark's account, I'm sorry, Matthew's account in Matthew 13, and then also Paul talking about it in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, interpreting the signs of the times. This is uh, really a big deal, is that we've been given everything we need to understand these signs and therefore interpret what time in human history we're living in. Jesus likens this process here in this passage. Now, he's, he, a minute ago, he did it to likening it to birth pains. Now he says, let me give you another analogy. He likens it, the process of interpreting this is the simplicity of looking at the tender twigs sprouting on a fig tree. When its twigs start growing, you know that spring is near. He says it's just like that. When you see these signs that he just listed off, you can know with confidence that he's coming soon. All right, let's spend a couple minutes in wrap-up here, and then we'll break up into groups. So the command to be ready. I'm going to read this passage, and I want you to look at the highlighted phrases. This is how Jesus ends this uh, Matthew 13 uh, uh, teaching on the end times. It's Matthew 13, 32 through 37. I want you to read how many times and in how many ways the highlight is that, to, that we're to be ready, okay? About that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and he puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and he tells everyone at the door, keep watch. Therefore, keep watch. Because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether it's evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. That's interesting because when Jesus says this term, no one knows the day or the hour, it says about, about the day or the hour, no one knows. It's really interesting because that was supposed to provoke us to pay attention, not to dismiss it. Because the rest of everything that he says is, watch out, be alert, stay engaged, keep watch, keep watch, pay attention. So it can't possibly be that when he says, no one knows the hour, so don't worry about it. It's the exact opposite. But we've taken the term, no one knows, and culturally, so much in the church has just said, see, you can't know, it's not important, doesn't matter, don't be distracted by the whole end times thing. Jesus' point was the exact opposite. I mean, loudly he was trying to make the opposite point. Next uh, point uh, that I'll, I'll bring up here is be on guard. I just think about the, the parable that he's just giving here about the whole end time drama. <coughs> and even in the midst of that parable, which parables, they're a little confusing. <coughs> parables, there's a little bit of mystery. Parables are God's way of confounding the wise and letting the humble understand. Because if you're wise, you just look at it and you go, I don't get it, so it doesn't make sense. Or you go, because I'm wise, I get it, and therefore you make your own interpretation. That's how the wise handle it, one of those two ways. The humble go, what the heck? What is help? What are you saying right now? And God goes, oh, well, because you're hungry, I'll give you understanding. So that's what parables are supposed to do. So in the midst of these parables that Jesus is telling, he says, be on guard. He exhorts us to be on guard as believers. We're posted on the walls of the whole end time storyline 
to be a guard of the content, a guard of understanding, a guard for our friends and our family members that we're supposed to be on guard. You can't be on guard and like be on your phone. I mean, it's like you got to be on guard. Like you got to be paying attention. And so the entire body of Christ is actually called to be on guard. But there's so much of a dismissal spirit in the church that just says, how the end times, you can't really understand it. Whether you think you can or can't, you can't argue what Jesus said, be on guard. And you can't accidentally be on guard or be super distracted and really be on guard. I mean, these are just really simple elementary. I think Jesus, I mean, I, I mean, believe this deeply. I believe Jesus was peering through the crowd that he was speaking to and seeing the faces of the generation in 2023. And he's not speaking to that crowd because they wouldn't even actually use this content. This, they didn't live this out. But he was speaking to a future generation and he's saying, yes, you that's in a generation that's told the end times can't be understood, you be on guard. Yes, you that have been told it's too difficult to understand. Yes, you that's been told oh, the end times aren't a big deal, don't worry about it. You are to be on guard. And not just on guard, you're to be alert, attentive, looking, paying attention. Looking at the landscape expectant. See, that's alert. On guard is kind of like you're there. Alert is the red light just came on and it's like, now you know you're, you're in danger. It's like extra guard moment, extra guard alertedness. <clears throat> he says, you're supposed to be on guard and alert, expectant in the landscape to start seeing things change. Expectant to, to see a generation shift. He said, that's actually how you're supposed to live. And then he says, it's not enough that you did it for a day, a week, a summer, a year, a decade. He says this, keep watch. Well, but I've already been kind of doing this end time thing for a while now and nothing's really happened. Keep watch. These are the words of Jesus. I'm not even saying you have to like it. I'm just saying you can't erase it. I mean, it's really clear what he meant. We just don't really like it. It seems, I don't really know if that's applicable to me. I don't really know if that makes sense for our generation. The words of Jesus are be on guard, be alert, and then keep watch. Keep watch until what? Till you get tired, till there's a new fad, until Jesus' second coming. Whoa. That's Jesus. Help us. That's Lord. Ooh. Man. Okay. So the, the question was a uh, little bit of context. We know that those that take the mark of the beast, they're done. They are going to hell for sure. There's no coming back from that. Don't take the mark of the beast. But Andy's question was okay. What about a new believer that just gave their life to the Lord in that time period and they started following after one of the false Christs because they were missing the, you know, they, they were missing the memo. They were missing the signs. They didn't know how to interpret them. Um, and they're following after, you know, a false Christ and they're uh, genuine. Uh, you know, what happens? Did they get treated the exact same way as those that take the mark of the beast? I would say no. Um, that what's going to happen is all of them are going to get eventually by the Antichrist's, um, you know, government, they're all going to wind up being forced into the same situation. Will you take the mark of the beast and worship this man? And that's going to be the, the clear defining. So then the kind of follow-up question you asked was, or are they going to have to give an account for that on Judgment Day? Yeah, I think they will. And I think that many of them 
will start down that path and by the Holy Spirit's nudgings, by a friend that's in a different camp, you know, find out, oh gosh, I'm, I'm going the wrong way. Uh, I think some of them will be repentant. I think some will be in that situation and will wind up giving themselves completely over to wickedness in the midst of it and will no longer be in a good position. Uh, and then I think the group that you just described is probably the most fringe of fringe of fringe groups on the planet. Um, and that is somebody that's sincere uh, in that environment, uh, but they've not taken the mark of the beast and, and wouldn't because they'd know that was bad. Um, uh, but yeah, that's a great question. What a real context that's going to happen. That's great. Um, so the question was, these false Christs that aren't the Antichrist, will they be working with the Antichrist? And I think that they won't be. I think that they will be under the inspiration of Satan because it's, it's too timely for them to start that weird cult at that hour that was prophesied. I mean, they're being used by Satan for sure, but why and unto what end? Uh, so I don't think that they're going to be in relationship or league uh, with the Antichrist, but there's layers of deception that's like, do not be deceived. We may get there and find out that all of them are in the Antichrist you know, fan club, and they're all, you know, working together on this thing. I, I don't see that. I don't think that. Um, but I guess we'll see. So uh, that's, that's really good. I, again, I, I think that the, the point is to provide an alternative. That's how I read it. It's a, to provide an alternative to the Antichrist. And this is like the most niche group gone after. This is, this is Jesus warning the church. When this thing all goes down, deception is the number one priority to avoid. Not avoid the earthquake, not avoid the this, not a, like it's okay to die, but don't be deceived. Let me now unpack some of the layers of deception. There's going to be false Christ and false prophets. Then there's going to be an antichrist. Then there's going to be more false Christ and more false prophets. And I even think that the reason that the false prophets are going to exist is because I think they're going to serve like the two witnesses do. I think those false prophets are going to serve those false Christs and attest to them. So it's not like there's a false Christ over here and then there's a false prophet over here and they're unrelated. I think this false prophet over here is endorsing this false Christ and adding to his following and to his believability and to the signs and wonders uh, that, are, that are all happening. Um, so this is, this is going to get really challenging. And I would bet that as we get closer, we're going to get more layers of understanding of how intense this deception is. Just to, to say it this way, think about how intense of an idea it is how hard Jesus drives this, you Christians, don't you be deceived thing. It's just, it's over the top. He says it so many times from so many angles, so clear, it's repeated over and over. That tends to make me think we probably at a first glance, second glance, 10th glance, don't understand the fullness of the deception that's coming. Because why warn us about it? It's like, okay, get off my back, we got it. Like, we won't be deceived. I think it's going to be more difficult than that. I think that's going to be the challenge. And I think that's the reason that he said, watch out, don't you be deceived. He says it over and over. So uh, great question. So real practical, kind of like pastoral life question. If we know that the subject of offense is going to be a great uh, um, impact or influence in the end time drama, that's why Jesus said, bless her, those who are not offended on account of me. If we know that that's the case, what can we be doing so that we don't wind up offended in the midst of the most offensive hour of human history? 
I mean, it is, it is offensive, everything about it. I mean, it raining, you know, blood and hail and fire, I mean, that's offensive. Uh, it, you know, family members turning you in to the Antichrist, that's offensive. Everything about it, there's so many. So then Luke's question was, what can we do now in this hour, just right now, so real time, 2023, to prepare our hearts, to ready ourselves, uh, and specifically in relationship to the way that we navigate betrayal, uh, offensive situations, you know, people not having our back, friends being mean to us, you know, whatever uh, the case might be. So I think to take it that far is actually a good thing. For us to be thinking of the way I handle the situation with my friend right now that I'm feeling betrayed by, this is really good for me to be thinking this is preparation for what's coming. And to be taking it to heart that this current experience could serve me one way or the other. It could serve to callous my heart if I dismiss it and like, they're mean and dumb and that's just how it is. And I'm mad at them and I don't want to be their friend no more. It's like, that's a way to callous the heart. That will serve to make your heart more calloused. And as the days you know, grow closer, though the patterns that you've been operating in for the past decade leading up to the moment, that's, that's the you you take into this. That's the you that you take into the end time drama. It's not the end time drama starts to really uptick and now all of a sudden you can start getting ready. It's too late. That's, you were supposed to be preparing ahead of time. And really the way you prepare is do the gospel, like do normal Christianity, but like really do it. Really take it for real. Really take it to heart and recognize the stakes are high. So in those moments, like when we experience that, I think it's really good to like ask yourself the question, how quick am I to forgive or how quick am I to lord it over them and hold this over them and, and refuse to, uh, to receive their forgiveness or refuse uh, to, to give forgiveness rather, Re refuse to hear their apology, demand their apology and when they don't give it, hold that against them and say, see, you're the one that's in the wrong. I think that the way that we carry ourselves in these things, this is actually going to be a far greater indicator of how we're going to handle the end times than a lot of things, including even significant pieces of our theology. Like if you carry your heart well, the problem is Jesus says most people aren't going to carry their heart well. Like the, the intensity, the pressures, the increase of wickedness in those days will cause the love of most to grow cold. It's all these pressures. So how we handle disappointment, how we handle offense, how we handle betrayal or perceived betrayal, these things now they really matter because we're conditioning our heart to think certain ways, believe certain ways, respond certain ways. And the conditioning that we're doing, either this way or that way, that's what we're going to take into the trial when it comes. So that's an excellent question. Mm -hmm. So the question is, so all these things are going to happen. I mean, it's clear. The Bible says there's going to be Antichrist. There's going to be false prophet. There's going to be false Christ and false prophets. I mean, this is really layered. It's going to happen. The question is, why would God allow that? So... That's a fair question. I think that in order for, there's, there's so much about the kingdom of God that operates on justice. There's so much about the kingdom of God that God is thinking, what is justice and what can I hold on to as for real it was fair for, you know, 10,000 years, a million years into eternity Jesus is going to get to come back on the clouds with great glory, with the word of God prophesying it's going to happen ahead of time, 
with all the angels, with all the signs of the times leading up, and then the seals, trumpets, and bowls all happening in the order that they're happening. Jesus is given the most unfair version of, see, I told you ahead of time. I mean, it's, it is absolutely a stacked deck and yet still will be deceived those that aren't paying attention. It's just, it's crazy. But the point is, there is such a case. It would be unjust of God to not allow the devil an extremely long leash in order to deceive. And so much like the conundrum that we ran into at the end of Book of Revelation, when after the millennium, after a thousand years of Jesus ruling and reigning, then there's a second deception where Satan is let out of prison and he deceives those as many as the sea on the, uh, the, the sands of, grains of sand on the seashore. That happens after a thousand years of Jesus' perfect rule. It's like, what is all that about? Justice. It's, there must be a will to choose. And so this whole thing about deception, Jesus tells us ahead of time. I mean, just think about it. It's like, really, is it unfair if Jesus told us ahead of time, here's what's going to happen. Here's what you need to do. Don't do this. You'll be fine. If you do this, or if you don't pay attention, you're toast. And he makes it really clear, exclamation point, like really it's not unfair. It's really not unfair at all. It's really like the better question we ought to be asking, which I understand the human ache, but the better question we ought to be asking is, why am I so bothered by that? What in me is so bothered by the Lord allowing the enemy to do certain things even though he told me ahead of time the play-by-play -play strategy of the enemy. It's like, we just need to be a people that love the word, know the word, follow the Lord, keep humble hearts. But really, that's not an end-time church thing. That's a church whenever thing. We were always supposed to be those people. But in the end times, it all gets intensified. The gray goes away. It's black and white. It's intense. The righteousness of the church will be the brightest it's ever been. The commitment to the greatest commandment will be the greatest it's ever been. The power resting on the church will be the greatest it's ever been. The persecution will be the greatest it's ever been. The dismay, the difficulty, the distress of those days, the, the, the persecution, the deception will be the greatest it's ever been. It will be the absolute pinnacle of the battle of good and evil. It's even where Jesus said about the, the uh, harvesters, he said, no, let the wheat and the tares grow up together. It's both have got to reach full maturity. Both have got to reach 100%. And that's the way that he wants to do it. That's, that's the plan. That's the strategy. So it does cause us to then lean in and go, Lord, I really want to take this seriously. Like, I really want to be somebody that understands and walks this out well. Help me to do that. So great questions tonight. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources, please visit our website at tprdfw.com. Thank you.